Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The philosophy of sex. Welcome to the philosophy of sex. I'm Caroline Morohan. In the last 12 months, we've seen consent legislation in some major Australian states move leaps and bounds. After a disheartening 2021 that was awash with allegations of sexism and sexual violence within our political and legal systems, the newly implemented laws felt deeply consequential and monumentous. In June, New South Wales enacted affirmative consent laws that require people to give and obtain consent before sex. Victoria followed suit shortly after, including stronger laws to target image-based sexual abuse, which includes taking intimate videos of someone without their consent and distributing or threatening to distribute intimate images, including deepfake porn. It includes new jury directions to address misconceptions in sexual offence trials and reforms to better protect the confidential health information of sexual offence complainants. I grew up in a household of lawyers, so the law's impact on the world around me has always been front of mind. When these new laws were introduced, I was simultaneously relieved, overjoyed, and concerned that they're merely a band-aid for a much bigger problem. Law helps us when something goes wrong. In some cases, it can be a deterrent. However, how do we reduce incidences of sexual violence from happening in the first place? And can law be responsible for this? To help me unpack these questions, I've enlisted the help of Bree Lee. Bree is a powerhouse. She's an investigative journalist, cultural critic, and author of three books, who gets to be smart, beauty, and eggshell skull. Her memoir chronicling her time working as a judge's associate while pursuing her own sexual assault trial. Bree is qualified to practice law and has published peer-reviewed research. She's currently completing her PhD in law at the University of Sydney, where she lectures in media law. And Brie has been a vocal advocate for improvements to consent law and sexual violence law, particularly in Queensland. She has delivered what the New York Times Australia Style magazine described as a blistering attack on the judicial system. And this episode certainly echoes this view. The intention when creating this episode was to have multiple guests that represented various aspects of the justice system. Bree as a complainant and lawyer, and hopefully a judge or court administrator who could explain criminal proceedings and sexual assault cases. And hopefully someone from within the police force who could explain how sexual assault investigations are conducted. But after months of requests sent and denied, I could find no one from within the system, retired or currently working, who felt comfortable walking me through these processes on this podcast. The main reason I was given by multiple judges and police officers was that they were currently presiding over or investigating sexual assault matters. The inference being that discussing this topic could in some way undermine their work. While I see the professional argument for this, to me, it raises an interesting question around the idea of objectivity. I was requesting a structural overview of the justice system, not personal viewpoints. However, even this simple request was seen as a risk to the prized neutrality that is supposed to be the bedrock of a healthy justice system. But what does it mean for a system to be objective, particularly when it is comprised of individuals who are given enormous discretion over outcomes? Withholding an opinion doesn't eliminate its existence. Vocalising a viewpoint is one of many ways that our worldviews can manifest. While I think there is much to be said for not politicising the identities of people who work within the justice system, I do believe it's important to question the biases inbuilt into a system and of those who the system is made up of. I say all of this because it's deeply relevant to my conversation with Bree. This conversation happens in two parts. The first, looking at the criminal justice system from a survivor's standpoint. Bree shares her story and explains the process of pursuing her own case while working as a lawyer. The second part explores the wider issue of reducing sexual violence in society and whether the law is an appropriate tool for creating such reductions. 
I believe much more than legislation alone is required to genuinely tackle sexual violence. It demands a shift in cultural attitudes. And more importantly, it means asking deeply uncomfortable questions, like why is it predominantly men who perpetrate sex crimes? And how do we respond to this constructively? It's an issue that can't be fought with objectivity as it requires deep humility. There is a huge need for broader conversation surrounding the politics of sex. And this conversation with Brie is about consent, accountability, and our many blind spots in working towards a world with less sexual violence. Please enjoy my conversation with the cuttingly eloquent Brie Lee. And before listening, please bear in mind this conversation discusses sexual abuse However, no graphic details are shared. So I wanted to begin by talking about your experience working as a judge's associate and what you observed over that time. Mm. So I was a judge's associate in the Queensland District Court for a year and that, for anyone who hasn't sort of heard of that term, it's basically a fancy word for assistant. I was an assistant to a judge who did almost exclusively criminal law. So what that meant for us was every week a new trial and usually a handful of sentences for criminal law matters. And I would say the majority of them were sex crimes. So either child sexual abuse or adult sexual assault. And during that year as well, my judge and I had the most circuit of any of the district court judges, which means traveling to small sort of regional towns where the population uh, can't support a judge sitting there full time. But, you know, people have the right to have their matters heard by their community. And so judges sort of travel around. Um, And so I saw a huge amount of sex crime and in different places around the state. And basically what I saw was shocking. It it was like sort of a really disillusioning year, I suppose. What What I felt I was seeing in practice was very different to what we had been taught at law school. And basically just so much injustice. Um, the challenges that survivors, both children and adult survivors faced in trying to even have their matters heard the cross-examination, just the the flaws in the process. um, It was awful. It was horrific. I left with very much the impression that there was so many barriers to anyone trying to use the criminal law process to have their matter dealt with. Mm. So how old would you have been when you graduated law school and then became an associate? Mm. Uh, This would have been like early to mid-20s. Um, which is typically the age Um, people usually, not always, but usually go straight from graduating university into a year as an associate. And obviously you've spoken a lot about in the past, and particularly in Eggshell Skull, that sort of this experience of just seeing the rife injustice that's so prevalent in these systems Mm -hmm. was really a catalyst for you then coming forward to lay your own sexual assault complaint if you're sort of open to sharing, can you talk us through that process and what it was like, A, witnessing other people's traumatic events while trying to reconcile sort of something traumatic that had happened to you? So I suppose it sounds sort of ironic to describe the professional experience being a you know year-long disillusionment and then deciding to proceed with my own matter. But my case was in, was one instance of child sexual abuse, not adult sexual assault, which I just clarified because um, consent was never uh, an issue um, in my matter. But it was towards the end of the year and I heard one particular complainant, a man who was able to achieve a guilty verdict in his case. This was in, I think, Warwick it was. And he read out loud his own victim impact statement to the courtroom at which is something that you can choose to do if you are fortunate enough, basically, to get to the point where the person you've made an allegation against is being sentenced. And hearing him read that statement out loud to the courtroom was a transformative moment for me. He talked about this kind of lightness and this closure 
and something resolved within me that I wanted to try and deal with my own matter myself. And that kicked off what would turn into a two-year-long investigation culminating in a two-day trial. And that process then was um, horrific. (laughs) So incredibly re-traumatizing, destabilizing. You have no control over the process. You are the last person to know anything ever. There is no one holding your hand. There's no one explaining it. The defence team are just more likely to, the longer they drag it out, because the more likely a complainant is to not be able to proceed and just to drop the complaint. Uh, The tricks um, that they tried, it was just awful, a really horrific, awful time, and I found it almost too difficult. There were multiple times where I nearly withdrew my complaint, and I am supported by my partner, supported by my family. I'm an able-bodied, university-educated white woman who literally was a lawyer, and I almost found it unbearable. And my matter took two years, which is actually a mercifully short time. It is very common for the investigation and sort of charging and committals process for a sex crime, either child sexual abuse or adult sexual assault, to take three, four-plus years. The wait is one of the worst things. I've always said that. And, and now I've in the sort of five or whatever years that have passed since I've heard a lot of other survivors say that as well, that one of the worst Mm -hmm. things about trying to basically access the criminal justice process is having this horrific cloud hang over your head for an indefinite amount of time and feeling like the whole rest of your life has to sit on pause until it's dealt with. And you go months at a time, not knowing if something's going to happen and then you just will get a phone call out of the blue or a letter in the paper, sometimes too late for you to turn up to the mention or whatever. It's it's just <laughs> you sort of couldn't design a worse system for survivors to live during, let alone to feel any sense of like empowered by. Mm. Yeah, and I, I really want to break down some of those functions and features in a bit around the process that people would would typically go through. But before we do that, I wanted to get a sense of what eggshell skull actually means. It's obviously a legal concept that the book is named after. And I think it sort of speaks volumes to what you've gone on to do in your work since then and sort of what you're advocating for. So yeah, if you could break that down, that would be great. Mm. So eggshell skull is a legal maxim, like a term that law students hear in sort of first year law and then throughout their degree. And it's basically shorthand for this principle that you have to take your victim as you find them. So the hypothetical situation usually given to explain the idea is that person A punches person B. And then person B, it turns out, had a skull as thin as an eggshell. And it meant that with one punch, person B died. And what this principle stands for is our Lord's attitude towards accepting the whole of the ramifications of your actions. So person A is not allowed to turn up to court and say, oh, you know, I shouldn't be charged with the murder of this person because they should have had the strength of a normal person. You have to accept the entirety of whatever has flowed on from your own actions. And the principle is usually refers to the weakness in person B, usually refers to us having to go about our lives taking care in the way we interact with other people. Um, but the way I wanted to use it in my book was was wondering if it was possible to be such a strong and supported survivor that you made person A regret choosing you to target as person B, if it was possible to kind of flip that on its head, if the system allowed for that excruciating power imbalance to ever even be slightly upset. And if it was going to be, it would be someone like me who had all of those privileges and benefits that I outlined earlier. And and I should add a, a police officer father, uh, retired then. But yeah, I just wondered if this system would even allow for that. Mm. Did you find that it was possible? Yeah, I think so. I don't think um, I could have stuck with it if I wasn't so supported by my like partner and family and friends. I also know, we know statistically that if you rock up to a police station making a complaint 
about a sex crime, whether or not you fit this sort of perfect victim stereotype has a huge effect on whether the cops will even investigate, let alone even charge someone at the end of the investigation. And then also we know juries carry the prejudices that they have, that the average Australian has out in the street. They, they don't, you don't check your privileges or prejudices on your way into the jury room. And I had everything. I had absolutely everything anyone could have, including even just financial security. You know, I've never, ever in my life feared for where I might sleep at night. I've never couch surfed. I've never been a rough sleeper or had to live out of the boot of my car for a while. All of these things Hmm. stop huge sections of the population from feeling like the criminal justice system is even remotely an option for them. Yeah. And on that, I want to start to talk about the process in Australia. So, I mean, I'm from New Zealand where we have a similar system, but obviously Mm. there are some sort of baseline differences, but particularly want to talk about the criminal justice system and what the process that a person will go through when they report a sex crime in Australia. Mm. So for the most part, people will see a cop first. And in Australia, there are slightly different levels of kind of training and resourcing in different states and territories, which is a huge part of the problem, actually, because the situation at present is that if you have survived something either this morning or 30 years ago and you rock up to a cop shop, you are playing Russian roulette with whether or not you will get an officer who has received specialist training, who knows the right and wrong things to say to you. Um, And even if you are in like one of the better places, apparently, um, is Victoria, where they have SOCIT, I believe is the acronym, S-O-C-I-T. It's a department where the officers there are sort of trained better and know how to respond to trauma, sexual trauma specifically, and survivors of sex crime specifically a lot better. You'll either make your sort of first statement or explain a little bit about your situation. And it can go a few different ways. You may be believed by those officers. Those officers might take it seriously. Those officers might be well-resourced and trained well enough that they make all the right moves and that you feel very supported. Uh, And then when the investigation is happening, they might keep you sort of lightly informed through that typically sort of months-long process where they'll go and take statements, they'll go and try and find supporting evidence of any kind, um, which, as we all know, is incredibly rare um, in sex crime matters. If you're unlucky, they will be discouraging, disrespectful, and sort of just convince you to drop it and go away because for various reasons it wouldn't be worth it. And there is just a whole sort of spectrum of grey zone in between what might happen there. But presuming it does get investigated, that takes however many months, however many years, depending on whether it's a historical event or a recent event, um, it takes a different amount of time. They will at some point in time get in contact with the alleged perpetrator, which is sort of quite frightening for a survivor often. If they feel that there is enough evidence, then the alleged perpetrator at that point in time will be charged. They then either like lawyer up themselves or they may be allocated legal aid and you begin through the court's process. Your sort of brief, the brief of evidence relating to your matter will be handed from the police to the prosecution. For a lot of people who aren't familiar with the criminal law, the police and the prosecution are separate bodies. It is correct to understand them as working on the same kind of side, but they are two separate teams. And so when the handover process happens from police to prosecution, like my experience and the experience of many survivors I speak to is that you just get handed over and the people you were dealing with for one or two years sort of evaporate and you're dealing with a whole new set of people. I had technically three different quote-unquote victim liaison officers and I never met any of them in person and I would get a letter in the mail when they moved on and I had been allocated a new one. 
So the sort of support for the complainant in the process is nothing (laughs) often. It will go up through the courts. So you have to have like early mentions at the lower courts where a sort of magistrate or a lower level judge basically vets the charges and then you might get listed for a trial date. You might have pre-trial hearings. The defendant in my matter tried everything he possibly could to put me through the ringer. And like one of the things that he did was he made an application that I have to be go through all of my evidence in chief and cross-examination at the magistrate's court stage. And then that I would have to do it again if it got to the actual trial stage, which would have been horrific. Getting cross-examined is the worst thing in the world. And they just knew that they could try that on. And fortunately for me, the magistrate just said, no, that's ridiculous. But it I might not have had a magistrate that said that and I would have to do the worst bit twice. Like there are so many opportunities for people to treat you like shit and there's nothing you can do about it. So between the time that you make your first complaint and it goes to trial, if it even does, and that is of course a like process of winnowing um, where a small fraction of people who make complaints ever make it to that final trial stage, that could be three or four plus years later and then you'll actually go to trial. It can take multiple days. It is rare that you will get a judge who takes a more active role in trying to limit what a defence barrister will sort of try to get away with, basically, in any kind of aggressive tone. You know, some it's judges very much control the tone of their courtrooms, and some judges will or won't accept even something as simple as a raised voice or sort of how many times you can be asked the same question. They're not supposed to be allowed to like badger you with the same question multiple times, but in practice they often do. And the legal profession we know is a pretty bad place for misogyny. Rates, for example, of sexual harassment are worse in the legal profession than they are in the general cross-section of the Australian population. So it should come as absolutely no surprise that survivors are often treated terribly by legal professionals. Uh, And then you'll get a verdict. And through absolutely no fault of your own, it might go the way you want it to, or it might not. Even if it goes the way you want it to, to, there might be an appeal. Uh, That request for an appeal might be successful or unsuccessful, uh, and there will be a sentencing. Mm. Yeah. So (laughs) in a nutshell, that is the multi-year horror roller coaster for yeah. survivors. Yeah. Yeah. And I think obviously what you're pointing to there is obviously just like a complete barrage of systematic issues. On the face of it, there are a lot of legal concepts that seem to be in favor of the person going through the experience, but in reality they've kind of been morphed and used to work against the survivor. You've kind of touched on a few of them, but what are some of the major design faults within the legal system that really perpetuate those issues? Because, I mean, a question you often hear is when you talk to a survivor, they'll often be asked, well, why don't you want to pursue this? Like, what's preventing you from doing that? And I mean, you hear your story and it's pretty blindingly obvious why no one would ever want to put themselves through that. But yeah, what are those kind of base design faults that get in the way? Mm. I would say one of the key ones is as a complainant, you are not a party to the proceeding. You are only a witness, which is the way it needs to be for very fundamental criminal law concepts. You know, it's an offence against the state, um, which is the same reason why a complainant cannot, nor should they have to, like, fund their own criminal law motion. The effect that that has on the complainant's experience throughout the entire process is very different because it means, for example, that the complainant does not have any control over the speed at which something is investigated or charged. It means that the complainant is not always kept in the loop. You're often the last to know, even though it's all about you and you're the one that is sort of most affected alongside the defendant. And the defendant has somebody representing their interests there, holding their hand all the way through. And there are just no, there's no sort of facility 
at least that I know of yet in the Australian system, for the complainant to have a lawyer, even if you sort of want to, even if you were financially able to. And and I feel a lot of tension here even saying that because I don't believe there should be any reform to these processes or procedures that requires any financial contribution from any possible complainant obviously like that's just you know it wouldn't be an answer to say okay if a complainant wants to they can hire a lawyer um that will you know like it's not the solution it just means that you know the people who or, or, who are already supported and doing well are still supported in that system and the people who are most marginalized are even more marginalized a defense barrister represents the interests of the defendant the prosecutor doesn't represent your interests they represent the interests of the court and that means that there are tons of stories where survivors will not have their wishes or desires listened to when prosecution make plea deals with defendants or that prosecution will just sort of pressure someone into taking a plea deal to a significantly lesser offence. It's even like I've reported, like been speaking at events or reported on stories where survivors, particularly where the defendant was like a current or former partner where the defendant will agree to plead guilty to physical physically violent offenses if the sexual offenses are dropped and the prosecution will take that deal even though that does not even remotely reflect what the survivor has actually been most offended by and that kind of shit wouldn't fly if if survivors had representation of their own I had to go and sit in on every single mention because there was no one allocated to my matter who was going to do that for me. And for me personally, the the only way I could feel even remotely, not even in control, because you certainly don't get to feel in control, but informed. The only way I could feel informed throughout any of that process was to be really annoying was to constantly be calling the prosecution, constantly calling the cops, constantly trying to do an invisible fucking calculation about how how much was the maximum I could possibly call them to just find out what was happening without ever risking annoying them so that they might not take my matter seriously or shove me off. The fact that you are dealing with all of the stuff and then on top of that trying to like manage their professional like what I'm trying to manage my adding to their professional workload like that's but that's what survivors have to do if they want to stay informed properly so yeah a huge one is that there is nobody there throughout any of that process representing the survivor's interests Um, which is a problem that comes very squarely from this overlap between basically funding and attitude because yes, it would be really expensive to fund something like that. Uh, but if people understood how horrific the experiences is, and if people were even remotely committed to increasing the rates of convictions for sex crimes, because they're currently sitting at sort of low single digits, you know, if that attitude was there, then the funding would follow. So why are there any legal concepts or is there anything to do with the role of the Crown, say, that creates that separation? Like what are the structural reasons for that? Is it just funding or is it more than that? I would say that in 2022 it's just funding. I can understand why historically the situation has developed the way it has. And it comes back to that difference between civil and criminal law, where any sort of criminal law offence, that's an offence against the state. And it has to be against the state so that the state funds the prosecution of that offence. And so the complainant is understood as a witness to the offence against the state. And that is, you know, an important, that's the important part that stops the complainant from having to be the one to fund the criminal trial, because it's not an individual versus an individual. That's civil law. But there are some ways in which we have come leaps and bounds in how marginalised or at-risk individuals experience the court process. 
So one of those, you know, for example, is that you can make an application to give your evidence by a video link. At a time and a place, that was considered outrageous. And a huge number of usually bar associations uh, are the, the sort of main advocates for the interests of defendants. And improvement like that, at the time that it is being fought for, feels revolutionary. And I think it's fair to say that in allowing survivors, particularly children, um, but also just any survivors, because sex crime is different. It is both against adults and children. That has not led to any procedural unfairness for a defendant. What it has led to is an increase in whether or not survivors feel strong enough to testify. And if there was enough movement and support and push towards survivors, for example, having their own advocates who just turn up to the dates to make sure that the survivors' actual wishes and interests are being respected, if you started fighting for that, without a doubt, you would have the bar associations and people advocating for the interests of defendants. They would be in uproars. A huge problem here is that people have the wrong idea that anything that makes things a little bit easier or a little bit less shit for survivors automatically must lead to unfairness for the defendants. And that is a false binary. That is a false equivalence. And we can point to many examples with video links being a really obvious and easy one where it has made things better for the complainant. That does not mean it has made things worse or anywhere, in any way unfair for the defendants. Um, it just sort of sucks for them because it means the people they may have offended against are actually more empowered to testify. You cannot say that that's automatically an unfairness. Yeah. I think one thing where exactly that dynamic that you're talking about gets stickier, even though, as you say, it, it needn't, is around ideas of sort of natural justice, reasonable doubt, the right to fair trial, ideas around sort of jurisprudence where you almost start to go into the space where it's like ethical components of the law. And obviously those ideas have been used by people in power, which is obviously mostly white men. So they've taken a particular frame. How has that kind of changed the way survivors are treated when you have these concepts that are treated in a particular manner? Mm. The industry is one which is so in its bones deferential to authority and backwards looking. It is That is just a core part of the way you are taught from first year law is to respect your elders and that the longer and stronger a precedent, the better. So I would just give an example as an answer to this question, which is that we are still fighting for improvements to consent and the mistake of fact excuse in Queensland. And that has been quite, I have felt that to be quite a brutal advocacy campaign. I have been attacked as an individual where I feel that I have criticised a system. And one really shocking point was when the Queensland Bar Association came out belittling or, or trying to minimise what we were fighting for by saying that, you know, this fringe group of non-lawyers want to change a 120-year-old law. And it made me realise that we were not even, uh, it's, it's like sometimes it feels like I'm not even arguing against them. It's like we're missing each other across the bow. Because if you are talking about a law that relates to gender and a law that relates to power and sex, my perspective is that the older it is, the, the more regressive we can presume it to be. And the older it is, the more urgently it probably needs updating to reflect current community attitudes. But the perspective from the sort of status quo rusted on legal profession is that 120-year-old law is great <laughs> and that that is strong and firm precedent. It's just this thing that is so hard to push back up against when an individual not only makes an argument which they believe is a superior argument, but they also have somehow led their entire lives being allowed to believe that they have an ability to be objective that the rest of us lack. 
and it makes it so much more difficult to have a reasonable discussion, ironically, with that person because they have not lived an entire life of being forced to see other people's perspectives um, and they are not practised. Ironically, for people who like spend their entire professional lives debating and arguing, they are not practised in questioning their own viewpoints and they are especially unwilling to recognise that experience is a kind of expertise. So I have spoken to so many or argued against so many lawyers who have incredible amounts of experience and expertise at the particular part of the law that they work in, but do not recognise that someone in my position who has gone from the beginning with the police, then to the prosecution, then to the trial, and then like through an appeal against sentence. I am one of a very small number of people who has both legal expertise, I qualified to practice but don't, and who has actually lived through the years-long process of being a complainant. That experience is not recognised as expertise by people in the legal profession because it doesn't sort of tick their particular boxes. And if mm. that isn't evidence of blind spots and subjectivity, I don't know what is. <laughs> Obviously, we talk about philosophy a lot on the show and I interview quite a lot of philosophers, quite a few philosophers, and it's similar issues across all of these different disciplines where it is so much based on the mind, what you know, and nothing to do with what you've experienced, um, mm. which it does just seem absolutely absurd <laughs> on all fronts. Yeah, and also <laughs> these professions which are so prone to people feeling exceptionalism, that's a problem I know in medicine as well. Like any profession mm. in which you are being told either explicitly or implicitly by like the amount of money you earn and the sort of position people like the sort of deference people give you that you are special, that you are an exception to the rule that you have special knowledge, you have power over others and that it is right that you do because you have earned it. Like once you give people that power, if they are ever, if they feel that power is threatened or if they feel that there is a risk to that power, it becomes a, an extraordinarily powerful self-protect mechanism to reject any arguments or individuals who present contrary arguments. Yeah. Obviously, there are huge amounts of systemic structural issues with the way the justice system operates. One thing I want to distinguish between when it comes to talking about sex in the context of law is Obviously, there needs to be systems to protect people that have experienced sex crimes and they need to operate effectively. But then also there's a wider piece where we need to ideally prevent that from happening. And often I feel there's a tendency for people to reach to law and legislation, and obviously legislation is a part of the puzzle, to try and create that prevention. Mm -hmm. What are some of the problems with that, if you think it's a problem, um, and do you see law as either the most effective or even an appropriate method for improving rates of sexual violence and sex crimes? Mm. In Australia, it is so much easier to get legislation updated than it is to get any kind of cultural change or systemic change to the police service. And a specific example of this is the 10-person task force that has been set up and is currently undertaking a huge review in Queensland, uh, led by um, former Justice Margaret, Margaret McMurdo. They got tasked with delivering two separate reports. They have delivered the first part of their report, which is specific to um, whether or not coercive control should be legislated against. And the second part is more broadly about women's experiences with criminal justice in general. The first part of the report came with 100 and something recommendations and a huge number of those related specifically to consistent systemic failures in the Queensland Police Service. And one of the biggest recommendations from that sort of part A, I guess, of this task force reporting was a review into um, not just sort of training in the Queensland Police Service, but attitudes and what the heck is going on because the task force came back with the report that you can't, it would be so risky to just add extra 
legislation when we are hearing from women in particular already marginalised groups, so Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, um, migrant communities, English second language, people who live with disability, etc., that police often make it worse. But those were like key recommendations from this task force's report, right? And the Queensland Police Commissioner, who is a woman, the first, if I'm not mistaken, um, woman to hold a position, just rejected the need for any review into QPS practices and procedures. And by contrast, if the Queensland government decided to, they would have huge amount of community support to introduce coercive control legislation and they could do it ASAP if they decided to. We live in a country that is extraordinarily comfortable with a high level of police control and a high level of police violence. We see that with absolutely no improvements in the rates to Indigenous deaths in custody, as one example. Yes, I am someone who is fighting for legislative update in Queensland, so to the consent and mistake of fact excuse. That was a fight that I joined because the Women's Legal Service Queensland have been pushing for that improvement for a long time now. It is true that if you can improve the legislation, it has a flow back effect. So if the legislation is more fair for survivors, you are more likely to get a person actually committed to trial because the prosecution will see that there is a slightly slight increase in the chance of actually securing a conviction rather than running trials being pointless, as they oftentimes are in Queensland with the current abysmal legislation. And that has a flowback effect to whether or not the police even bother to gather a full brief of evidence, whether or not they take you seriously when you turn up to the cop shop. Because at the moment, the consent legislation in Queensland is so abysmal that it's kind of, it's certainly not fair and I don't think it's appropriate, but oftentimes it's accurate for a police officer to tell a survivor there might not be much point in you pursuing this because of the way the system is set up. I would never, obviously, would never recommend they say that, um, but I couldn't say that that's an inaccurate piece of information. New South Wales has recently shown great leadership in this space and actually legislated for an affirmative consent model. Uh, It's pretty interesting uh, that that is what we were fighting for in Queensland and people told me I was an idiot who didn't know what I was talking about. So (laughs) celebratory middle finger. Um, Queensland (laughs) parties in that regard. But the bigger question, of course, is whether or not the criminal justice response is the most sort of effective place to focus our efforts if what we're interested in is prevention. The answer there is on relationships and sexuality education, number one, and a collective societal willingness to use active language in and take responsibility for the fact that men and boys overwhelmingly do this damage. We seem to be at a state as a nation where we are willing to believe women when they come forward, certainly more so than we were five years ago, let alone 10 years ago. I, I do have faith that that shift is slowly occurring. Where we seem to be unwilling to take a step past that is accepting that it is the men in our communities who are doing that damage. That seems to be, honestly, the final frontier. Mm. I do give talks to schools sometimes about consent and relationships and sexuality education, and the questions I get asked by the students are heartbreaking. These are the generations that I often hear, like older people, just sort of putting all of their hopes and dreams and optimism onto the shoulders of. But this kind of stuff actually has to be taught for it to be understood. We can't just cross our fingers and presume that without great RSE, kids are just going to somehow know it. Um, Because without great RSE, what they will know is what they get from the internet, which is terrifying. Yeah. I get parachuted in to talk to grade 10, but mostly grade 11 and 12s. Over half of them are already sexually active. It Mm. is so, so incredibly too late (laughs) for for that. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's really heartbreaking. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, majority, if not all of the people listening to this podcast would have had that exact experience. You know, it's just, it's, it's a prolific and common experience. You basically have to be living with a good sex education teacher as a parent or a guardian or something. So obviously we've established 
law change is necessary. It's a necessary evil mm. and a difficult thing to do. But the, the broader issue is how do we actually create social change around some of this stuff? What is your sense that you're kind of developing as you're doing more advocacy work and writing on beyond sort of education? What do we do about adults and things like that? It's important to keep faith. Like it's important to stay determined, if not hopeful, at least determined. Mm. The Me Too movement hit the mainstream in Australia in 2018, um, but I think it's more accurate to say that Australia had its Me Too year in 2021 and... Mm that we will never go back from that. If somebody makes a complaint, we at least take it seriously now. Still a long way to go, but we are much better at giving a complainant the benefit of the doubt, whereas we have always given the accused the benefit of the doubt. We just seem to be so unwilling as a collective to continue to take it seriously if there is any risk that there will be ramifications for the man involved. <laughs> it just seems such an obvious line that we are not yet willing to step across. Mm. That's why I'm sometimes frustrated by conversations around consent. It's not because consent isn't important. It's the baseline. It's the bare minimum. It needs to be there. But how do we actually handle consent in a way that is egalitarian? And how do we start to move away from a conversation that's always about sexual violence to actually having one that's about the broader politics of sex and sexuality that have resulted in us being here? And how do we start to kind of unravel some of that? But it's so much, it's so connected to everything else. Like we yeah. still can't get men to take carer's leave and actually raise their own children. Like it's part of sexual violence against, honestly, against both children and adult women for the most part as part of this package of things that men get away with because it is not appealing to them to step up and either do more or do better. Mm. In another piece that you wrote for the monthly, I believe, the review of The Right to Sex by Amaya Srinivasanan, you mentioned the quote where she kind of compares sexual norms to like capitalist free exchange. Mm. What matters is not the conditions that sort of give rise to the dynamics of supply and demand. It's it's more about why some people are in a situation where they're vulnerable and having to sell and why some people are in a situation where they're the ones that are able to consume. Mm. That's the more interesting conversation, right? Yeah, and that's also the part that the law is incredibly incapable of dealing with. Because, yeah. you know, for example, I'm thinking of appeals that have happened in um, Queensland where sexual violence committed against a woman with a disability. I think it was a woman who lives with um, like wheelchair, a wheelchair as her mobility aid, who could not even get a conviction upheld against the taxi driver who she alleged had sexually assaulted her because the law is so unwilling and seemingly incapable to take into account wider contexts of pressure and power and coercion and control. No, that's that's exactly it. Yeah, I mean, that's what this episode is going to shape up to point to. That's <laughs> but it does blow my mind that you have to write a whole episode or a whole article or a whole something just to get to that basic point that seems mm. pretty fundamental to me. It was even interesting in my most recent book, sorry, when I was looking at like why there's a whole lot of information and a whole lot of misinformation out there about when um, girls and boys do better or worse in single goal co-educational school settings in their like sort of results. And people love to sort of um, blow out like results of studies about this. What we do, like what we can say for sure is that girls feel better about themselves when they are in single-sex environments. And, of course, this isn't even... A lot of this research doesn't even touch on trans, non-binary, intersex experiences. But in this sort of binary, like, hetero world of studies, girls feel better about themselves when boys aren't around, and often that will translate into improvements in their results. But it's not just because they learn better. It's because something about 
being with boys makes them doubt themselves and lowers their self-esteem. And it's not only because of the way their peers treat them, it's because of the way teachers treat them. I mean, speaks volumes, right? It speaks volumes. <laughs> like how this is what I mean when I say I now I now understand sexual violence as being one part of this yeah. much bigger picture about why why it is insufficient to characterize every single interaction between two of those young people as the meeting of two free agents. The right to sex, the way it skewers that sort of capitalist understanding of of free engagement. Anyway, yeah, it's mm. oof, long way to go. We have come a long way, to be fair. We have yes. come a long way. Yeah. One of the things that I get really hopeful about when I do leave schools, because for the most part I talk to girls, one of the consistent questions I get at the end of my talk is why aren't the boys getting this talk? They feel and they know and they understand that the adults around them are letting them down. They feel and they know and they understand the way they want it to be. And the thing that sucks is that the adults are comprehensively across the board failing them. But whereas it used to be this thing that just wasn't spoken about, that people were just afraid of and couldn't even name, at least now young people are for sure more willing and able and capable of calling it out. And that in and of itself, I think, is huge. Thanks for listening to The Philosophy of Sex. And a huge thank you to my guest, Bree Lee. You can head to the show notes for more information about Bree's work. You can find us on Instagram at becoming.me. A big thank you to Zoltan Fitcho, who edited the episode and also wrote the music please leave us a review or subscribe if you don't want to miss any new episodes. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.